Hello and welcome to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Carter McNish. With me today is Mark Hager, author of The Last of the 357th Infantry, Harold Frank's World War II story of faith and courage. What drew you to this topic in particular and how did you go about researching it? It was actually a sheer accident. Um, I'm sure that many people out there have had um, events happen that you just you know shake your head afterwards and saying, this was uh, amazing. This was, I didn't expect this. Um, I was actually helping a um, local farmer here in North Carolina. Well, he does a lot of farming, but he, he bought a very historic site in Davie County. Um, the problem was he needed the land to farm. It was about 2,000 acres, but he didn't know what to do with um, the antebellum um, house um, that was on it. Um, in terms of proper preservation, and that was one of my fields, was um, was going into that from the colonial period up um, into especially the 1800s with preservation ideas and uh, what to do, what not to do. And um, he had me come out there and look over the grounds, and I gave him some suggestions about restoring it back to the way it should look. And then out of gratitude, um, he invited me to a farmer's uh, luncheon that he was um, – um, doing uh, near one of his barns in Davie County, North Carolina, and it's uh, about a 45-minute or longer drive from my office at Lenore Ryan University. And so I got there just a little bit late and um, walked in, uh, got my food, and looked around, and um, some of the tables were filled, and I saw uh, a seat available, and the guy sitting beside me uh, or sitting there um, with the empty chair next to him, I saw POW um, on his on his hat, and I kind of looked for veterans anyway. And he was older, um, older looking. So I, I, you know, came in and politely asked if I could sit beside him, and he said yes. A little bit hard of hearing, so I had to speak a little bit louder. So we ate, and then um, we got into a conversation. And uh, when I asked him what unit he was with, and he said the 357th Infantry, I just kind of stopped, because it didn't say World War II on his hat, but I said, uh, sir, are we talking about the 357th Infantry from the 90th Infantry Division that came in at Utah Beach in Normandy? And um, he said, yes. And I immediately, you know, that was a unit that I have read some about to where it was virtually wiped out two or three times during the Normandy campaign. Um, and he's alive. <laughs> it was, and plus, you know, not just being 96 at that time, but, and I looked around and I said, I know everybody in this place, in this county, but I, I've never met them. And, um, so I kind of looked over at Spurgeon Foster. That was the one who had the luncheon that I was talking about. And and then uh said, oh, my gosh. And I didn't bring anything really to write on. And we just started carrying on a conversation and um, about, you know, what he did. And he was a BAR rifleman, which I understood perfectly well from being in, in the Army myself. And then you know, talking about his POW status, and I said, well, where did they take you after you were captured? And he said, near Dresden. So immediately anyone that knows World War II history 
was going, and I said the scene of the thousand plane firebombing, and uh, and that's when I was just beside myself, going, why have not, why have I not heard of this guy, and uh, more importantly, where is his story? And I had some note cards and a couple of napkins, and I just started writing information down, and we just started talking. And he got very emotional on some of it, um, and uh, everyone had basically left, and we were still just sitting there talking. And then um, he asked, well, you can come over to my farm um, if you'd like to hear some more. And uh, I walked over to uh, Mr. Foster and said, you know, we have got to get this, this story out. This is a it's going to be a fantastic story. And he said, I know. So I immediately then uh, set up and to have an interview with him, go over to his house. And uh, I have known World War II veterans in the past, and, and I was uh, upset with myself of not writing more information or putting them on film because they're passing away so fast that... Uh, they would have amazing stories, and you would get back to it later, and then, then they're gone. So the media rush was to, to get the story together, and that, um, that's how it all started. Yeah, so I think all of us are just as interested as you were when you first heard his story, that you wanted to go talk to him even more. What was it like for him growing up and in the 1930s, the Great Depression? Did that prepare him for the war at all? That's the key. You know, he was he was shot at one point, shot in the shoulder. And then he fought nine hours, wounded. Watched one of his friends that he was trying to evacuate that had been shot in the leg and had been fractured. And, and so he couldn't walk. And when he was captured, the Germans executed him. And so he tried to hide his wound <laughs> from it. And then that's just the beginning. And I kept thinking, what is it about him that makes it to where he is not going to die. He, no matter what they do, he's going to continue the fight. He's going to his his love of home and family. He wanted to get back and see his family again. But and as I uh, spent hours interviewing him, uh, I finally singled in on an event when he was barely six years old in the Great Depression, and. When I heard him talk about it, um, about having to, their home, we're talking, when people talk about being poor um, in rural North Carolina, uh, this one will, will really pull you to, to understand what that means. When people say that they don't have much, well, most people that I know that say that today have no clue what not having much was, unless you go back to... Um, these people that survived during the Great Depression, and especially in rural settings like this. And at six years of age, you know, sleeping in a burlap sack for a quilt, um, and then his dad needed his help. There's no complaint. I mean, it was, son, you know, you got to get up. we, we got to do this. And they were finally trying to build um, a house that would be suitable for them, and it needed everybody's help and on what few resources that they had. And I followed him um, from that point when he's six years old and the amount of work that he was having to do without complaint because it didn't matter if you complained. You had to do this for the survival of the family. 
um, and trying to maintain that farm. And the what he had to do, it's kind of like the old uh, old commercial in the Army, you know, we do more before, what is it, like 9 a.m. than most people do all day? <laughs> well, he, at 6 a.m., I mean, it, it, before daylight, he's doing more than most people do all day. And But that's just part of the day, and it goes all the way past dark. And so I, I stopped and said, there's a secret right right here. We need to start at this event and follow him day by day in his in his voice. And so you're you're with Harold um, going from that time forward, and then how they survived the Great Depression and um, et cetera. And then that helps you understand a couple of things. One, what's going to happen when we put a person this resourceful onto a onto a battlefield in World War II, when people talk about the greatest generation. Basic training was not really teaching you to be in the Army, because um, he already had basic training from when he was six years of age. The Army just kind of awakened him as to what life is in the Army. His resourcefulness and skillfulness, it's not just him, but groups of other people that he would encounter have some similar characteristics. And so that's how I kind of changed my focus from understanding World War II. Instead of understanding what they did in battle, how they survived in battle, and then what happened to the unit, and then, you know, maybe the return home, I turned back the clock and said, let's start with him when he's six. Let's break down how he became so resourceful. What was his life like? And what was the life like with his family, friends, others? And what kept them going then, and then that would help explain um, his attitude in World War II um, and the other people in World War II who were also facing those challenges and how they came together uh, with their resourcefulness, and then what happens when it's over. When he comes back home, he has faced a lot in a short amount of time between the fighting. um, He came in... um, their unit, uh, see the 357th Infantry Base, some of them came in on D-Day, but the bulk of them came in around June the 10th. And um, the Normandy campaign was the the guys who initially hit hit the beaches at Omaha and Utah Beach, you know, when you think of U.S. forces. They came in, they had to secure that beach, but the whole campaign, Normandy campaign, most of the people that are going to be killed or wounded they take place in the immediate days following um, the norm, the D-Day invasion and covering mere 17 to 20 miles inland um, to secure it, trying to get to the town of St. Lowe. And they have to go through St. Mary Glees, the LaFerre Causeway, uh, Caritan. Um, we think of the 101st, 82nd, who are desperately trying to hold on to their sites as they were dropped in earlier. The 90th Division was given the improbable task of, while they're holding that beachhead, they would push forward and try to break through from where the 82nd was pinned down to St. Mary Glees, cut through, get through Gorbeville, and then cut a line straight across the Cochetin Peninsula so that no Germans could escape from Cherbourg, the port that they were not allowed to attack. Um, and no Germans could reinforce Sherberg. So they were going to fight a battle on two sides, in essence. And that's what uh, 
um, the 90th came in, and that was they were trying to um, bring in as many uh, pieces of equipment and personnel, and they had replacements and replacements and more replacements um, already being placed on the beach to get ready as they pulled forward. And Harold and his assistant gunner, Paul Esworthy, were two of the replacements that came in. And they were picked from Camp Shelby, Mississippi, because, um, well, Harold's case was the best shot in the 271st Infantry Regiment with the BAR, the only automatic firearm in an infantry squad. So um, he's pulled out of all the, of the unit in which he knew everybody, he knew all of his NCOs and et cetera, which makes Harold's story so difficult, is that you're now being thrust into a major attack in which you don't really know anybody. And uh, you do know your equipment, and, and so you, you lose kind of a, um, a feeling of, of time and place. And that's what took several years trying to put back the pieces as to where he was at, at each moment, because by the time they finished the Battle of Gorbeville, the replacements are now the veterans, because they've had 115% uh, casualties. Um, by that time. And then they move from there, and they have to head towards Bu Cadre, Hill 122, and, and other battles that would be famous in the Normandy campaign. And, um, and so their ability to survive um, and Harold's ability to um, look at the situation and improvise as quick as possible, be able to keep that, you know, his weapon serviceable at all times, no matter the circumstances, um, all of that falls back to his dad and one uncle um, back when he was six years old who taught him about equipment and what you need to do and ignore all of the problems around you. If you don't keep up that equipment, you're not going to make it. And so you can you can see that. Uh, well, you'll read about it um, all through the book. I hope that kind of gives a little bit of help, and that's before he actually – gets thrown into a POW camp, and which he told uh, some of the men around him that he says, now we're going to see what tough really is. And that's a, that's a whole other part of the, of the book, and many things that I had not heard about in World War II um, uh, was able to, to pull out of Harold and, and go back and try to find um, where the places were on the map and, and put that story together, which is intense. Yeah, so... You have brought us through his story so far through D-Day, and I just want to remind people that you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. And I'm talking with Mark Hager, the author of The Last of the 357th Infantry, Harold Frank's World War II story of faith and courage. So we've brought it through the bocage for the most part, and you mentioned that he was captured and put in a German POW camp earlier. How did that go about, and what was it like living in a Nazi POW camp, especially in that part of Germany? He'll well, his uh, initial capture, and I don't want to give too much away from the book, but his initial capture is because uh, by the time he got to about July the 5th, they were actually supposed to be um, uh, recovering for the first time from combat, replace their gear, clothing, etc., and they had just got, um, uh, we would call it the military, pulled out of the front and brought to the rear, back towards the beaches to where you get some some rest and Real food again, showers, new equipment, and et cetera. And um, he he did have time to 
to do um, that in one night, wrote a couple of letters, and then an, an NCO or uh, like a first sergeant came up and said that um, that they need some people to go back and said two infantry companies, um, it was the I&L company, the 357th, had um, been cut off and and they needed to try to get back contact with them. And um, Harold and Paul, as worthy, um, they went back, um, I think it was about July, the some month after D-Day, about July the 6th. They went back and then the mission would be at night to try to see if they could get contact back with those two companies. They moved forward at night. It was raining. It's like the worst night to ever be out on a patrol. Harold with a BAR, you're always at the front. The one with the automatic firearm is in the front. But he actually had, uh, sensing the danger of this one, had had his assistant gunner go farther back, um, not right there with them. And right at daybreak, they were trying to get across a hardtop road and a German machine gun nest and um, unleash fire upon them. Harold um, and two others get across the road, and the other ones are, are cut off. And they didn't realize it, but the 15th German Parachute Regiment was uh, kind of a lead element that was a major push to throw all the Allies back into, well, all the American side, threw all of them back into um, Omaha and Utah Beach. And so they're, they didn't know the attack was about to happen. They're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then suddenly they're behind lines, enemy lines. And uh, basically he does make contact with a group of, well, there's a couple of soldiers still in some vacant um, area where there was a few foxholes. And frantically jumps in with one of them, scares them half to death. <laughs> and uh, and then they, it was uh, some of the remnants of, of that two company. It, it, what had happened is they'd already been overrun. Many of them captured, many of them killed. And this was a few that they didn't get, and they end up in a in a firefight, pulling together what they had that lasted about nine hours. It actually, slowed up um, the German um, attack, and they had to redeploy um, elements to try to handle the appearance of what may have been a company or more of American soldiers when it really wasn't. It was just a few. And then when they ran out of ammo. Um, the other one, Harold, had already been shot in the shoulder, and, and, of course, the other guy got shot, fractured in the leg, couldn't walk, and he tried to get him and carry him out and try to get back to American lines, and um, and they were crawling out of the, the flooded fields that Germany had flooded before D-Day um, to try to make it to American lines. There was a German with a machine gun, and um, I think it was an MP-40 that was a, uh, that got stood up in front of them and captured them. And um, at that point, um, of course, the um, the one friend he didn't know his name was executed, and they make a herald and then a few other people they captured. They actually are forced to undress, make sure they're not carrying any equipment, and then um, get back on their um, – they take all their weapons, of course, and then they're they're taken into a barn – and uh, eventually um, taken to Stalag 4B, which is up towards Dresden, and it was miserable. But 
in between that, you'll see some stories that some that I think many have never heard about some of the German atrocities um, that they purposely did to um, POWs inside train yards, um, direct you know deliberately putting them on trains when they knew it was about time for Allied air attacks to try to hit rail systems, and then so um, they would be shot to pieces, and then they would get the survivors out of the cars and then repeat it day after day. Um, and, you know, numerous other things that happen. Um, that's all filled with the book that um, some of these things I hadn't heard. And then some of it I had to piece together with things that um, um, I had heard from growing up with some World War II veterans. And the whole work camp um, part where he was taken out of Stalag 4B and sent into an actual work camp where he was forced to work in a pulpwood factory. And uh, lost 92 pounds by the time he's recaptured. Had one escape attempt and then was recaptured from that. And, uh, and then he's recaptured by um, some elements of Patton's Third Army. Um, on, well, on May the 7th, uh, 1945, just as Germany is surrendering. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, remember that this has been Mark Hager author of The Last of the 357th Infantry, Harold Frank's World War II story of faith and courage. And I'm Carter McNish, and you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM.